we are under-indexed, under-invested, and under-prepared for the mental health tsunami that is coming. Welcome back to Inside Asia. That was the voice of Anurag Banerjee. He's sounding the alarm on mental well-being. Anurag isn't a medical professional, a healthcare expert, or a policymaker. He's a miner, of data that is, and through the organization he founded and runs, he's excavating insights that point to leading trends and developments in human behavior. He describes his organization, Quilt AI, as a mission-first technology company that's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy. While the company's bread and butter is AI-generated research used to help organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries, his team of data scientists, researchers, and analysts from time to time point their lens at issues worthy of global attention. Mental health is one such subject. And on this World Mental Health Day, the data is revealing, if not somewhat disturbing. Here's the headliner. In the past 18 months or since the onset of the global pandemic, there's been a 500% worldwide increase in conversations about mental health and well-being. This comes from data collected by his firm from 177 cities across 70 countries. It's an astounding jump, and the analysis is only made possible through the use and application of artificial intelligence. The research raises a bevy of questions. Why the dramatic increase? What's the root cause? What exactly is mental health? To be frank, the findings are inconclusive. And yet, the data is indicative of a problem brewing at a universal level. This is a vast subject with nuances as varied as the tens of millions of individuals now engaged and in search of mental health support. In the course of this 25-minute discussion, we try to unpack the problem, then ask, what can be done about it? Anurag, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. You're back again, your third appearance on Inside Asia. Uh, thank you for being here. And today we are going to discuss mental health and the workplace. Steve, happy to be here. I, I think, am I, am I the only one who's, who's, uh, who's come back three times? You could be. You are definitely one of my favorites. How about that? That is very kind. I appreciate All right. that. All right. <laughs> well, listen, I, and, and given the business uh, you run and, and the type of research that you engage in, um, much of what you touch on are social issues and, and social concerns. One is mental health. Um, pick your report. Uh, research suggests mental health worldwide is on the rise. What's your take on the current situation? Steve, Steve good news first, right? I think what's been, in my mind, the absolute best outcome of the pandemic uh, is this openness across all generations to speak more freely, more candidly about their mental health challenges. And I think, I think I'm, I am grateful for that as a Gen Xer. I think the boomer generation is happy about that. So I think, I think Gen Z who's led that conversation has taught us to be more in tune with how we feel, who we are, the challenges we face, um, and, and recognize mental health as, as a disease and as as an opportunity for us to uh, treat it as such, as opposed to it being shooed away. So yes, there is definitely more conversation, but that's because we all now have permission. Um, so I'm, I'm, I feel optimistic and really happy about, about this turn of events. You've touched on something, which is, is just that. Is, is this a case of an actual increase in mental health versus uh, mental health issues versus an increased willingness to discuss mental illness as stigmas begin to fall away? 
I, I, I don't know. The, 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 data, the data doesn't support uh, a discovery there because there's, and it's, it's kind of like the way um, ADD was diagnosed, right? There was overdiagnosis potentially. It was diagnosed to begin with and were kids not diagnosed earlier. I think the lines are, lines are blurry there. Um, I think there's definitely some, um, uh, some ease of diagnosis now. Um, there, I think, definitely um, controversially, probably there is some, uh, uh, some, it's easier for people to admit to it um, and sometimes easier for people to hide behind it. And I think, I think all our, our sentiments that are out there in the public, um, but the, lo- the volume has definitely grown. Um, yeah. and, and, and in terms of willingness to discuss or share uh, these situations, is it a global <laughs> phenomenon? Or are there certain countries or certain markets that have a greater propensity to want to share uh, the types of challenges that people are facing? I think it's reasonably uniform, but the U.S. leads by and far uh, in in their um, ability and intent and willingness to share share this. Um, but what's interesting for us for us in Asia is that there is also uh, a big jump in an otherwise um, often closed society, and I'm, I'm generalizing <laughs> you know, at a very, very broad level, of course, but even in Asia, the conversations are higher. What surprised me is Europe, and especially Scandinavia, in our data does not show a material increase in line, mm-hmm. and that's, that's confusing from what, what I know uh, in an offline way, but that was the only abnorm- abnormal finding that we had in our data. What are some of the more systemic issues that are are lending themselves to creating more mental unwellness? I mean, would you suspect? I mean, to what degree is it technology, social media itself, fear, uncertainty, COVID, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the climate change? Are, are, are these are there substantive issues that are starting to lend themselves to creating anxiety that simply didn't exist before? Or is it just a matter of people now that these things are in the open and there's so much information available, a preparedness to talk about it in ways they didn't before? I think the level of knowledge about issues has increased. And by that, I mean level of knowledge about climate change issues, level of knowledge about the potential risks of being unemployed. Um, so there's that, that knowledge increase has, 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 has accelerated um, mental health challenges. Social media, absolutely. You know, for so many, so many years, so many technology executives would not let their kids get on social media. And there's, you know, I think petabytes having been written now about the downside of that. Having said that, the plus that I find, especially with younger Gen Z folks, is that I find that for them, there is no reason to detox digitally, which mm. Steve, you or, may ha- you or I may have. Um, they don't have, it, it is just authentically who they are. They're not digitally native like the millennials. They're actually authentic, which is a much higher bar. So this is what they know. They grew up with TikTok. They grew up with Twitter. They grew up with Instagram. It's not as if they grew up with computers and the internet and then Twitter happened to them. So this is all they know. Uh, And because this is all they know, they see no reason to treat this as the other. Uh, Mm -hmm. For folks in Gen X and, and millennials who treated digital as the other, there's been a reason for social media to drive some of that. Um, I think the other overarching um, thing that is driving the increase in mental health challenges and conversations about that is this idea of, will I be okay? 
And we've, we've had this complicated recession in 2008, 2009. We have, we have this increasing yawning of inequality that continues at an incredibly rapid pace where, where uh, the 1% is, is in controls just much, much, much more than it, than it did in the past, um, as well as things around COVID. And COVID has been a classic example of, of increasing uncertainty for people. Um, and even in structured environments, even environments with great in the global north, that's led to led to challenges. I, I had coffee earlier today with somebody, and and you know a senior executive runs a large organization, several thousand people working for her, and um, and and this person was like, I'm not sure if life will ever go back to normal, and I think, I think there's some nostalgia in there, and I think this this person you know exemplified what others feel around the idea of I I am. I am not in control. The counter is, I guess, you could say you were never in control, but it just felt like, you know, you went to school, you got an education, you got a job, you did well, you got in the stock market, you owned a house. There was a sequence to life which has been taken away. And I think that's probably in my mind, the biggest determinant of shock that's happened to the people in their early 60s to their early, early teens. Yeah. And people have different ways of dealing with this, don't they? Some internalize, some externalize. I think in the research you've done, you demonstrate and you alluded to the fact that generationally, the millennials, Gen X, Gen Z are far more willing uh, to be open and expressive about this in order to process it, I guess, to some degree, uh, whereas maybe those of our generation and, and uh, are, are, are less willing, uh, believing that it's just part of life. And so therefore, you know, if, if it's up to us to, uh, in, in, in some ways, set an example, that may or, not, or may not be the right approach, but nevertheless, there does seem to be a generational divide in terms of how this is playing out on the social uh, media platforms, correct? There, there absolutely is, and and what's what's both concerning and sometimes humorous, but mostly concerning, is this idea of of the Gen Xers and and that that category of um, people considering the Gen Y and the Gen Z people as weak, right? Mm. And you you complain too much, you whine too much, you know, um, shut up and work is what they would like to tell these these younger people. Really? And, so between uh, the millennials and the Gen X, Gen Z, there's, there's, there's tension between there's them. Friction. There's absolute friction. Yeah. Um, there's absolute friction there. And I think what, what, I find, um, what I find interesting in that friction is that um, it cuts both ways. So the Gen Z are, are looking up at the Gen Xers going like, well, you know, you're in your mid-40s or mid-50s, and you've ridden the arc of the system, you've benefited, and you've left us a poorer planet and all these challenges. You haven't done what you should have done, and you've caused inequity. So there's there's animosity that goes upwards, and there's and there's disdain that flows downwards in the middle of this complicated uh, uh, mental health challenge that we're living them uh, living in. Among the the earlier uh, generations uh, who are willing to express and discuss this. Can you contextualize? I know there's millions of impressions here, but contextualize. Are these people sharing with each other? Are they cries for help? Are they outreach to, you know, say we should do something about it? Uh, is there a call to action? What's the nature of the kinds of conversations happening in the digital world? So, so there's, you know, I think people mistake the digital world to be what, what you put on Twitter or what you put on Instagram. And that's certainly true. And it sends a component of the digital world. 
the larger part of the digital world is when you go search on, on Google or any other platform. And, and the example that I always use, Steve, is let's say, you know, you're in, you're in Germany, you went for a drive and a walk, and you took a beautiful photograph on the top of a hill. And you came back and your knees were hurting and you're searching for, um, you know, am I arthritic, right? And they're, they're both dimensions of Steve, but they do two different dimensions, um, both, both, both authentic. We index a lot more on the am I arthritic data uh, as, mm. as honest data or as more, more complete data. And we find, we find um, a lot of desperation there. Um, mm. my, my personal opinion is that we are under-indexed, under-invested, and under-prepared for the mental health tsunami that is coming. Uh, I think we've indexed a lot in, in um, um, cure. So, you know, you have cancer, we're going to like, you know, you know, manage that excise that take it out. We've invested less in preventive care, even on the physical side. And we've absolutely, as a society in the world, invested less in mental health. So people don't know what to do, where to go, how to help themselves, how to be helped. Um, and then you add the layer of stigma on top of it. So you've got underinvestment, you've got stigma, and people are, are desperate, are lonely. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated time. It is. And even within the physical wellness space, the idea of preventive versus curative has been an issue for millennium. I mean, it's just, it's been a, a, a debate. And so now you toggle across to the mental world and you're trying to say, now more than ever, we need to take seriously the idea of preventive care, which then asks the question, from whom? Is it government? Is it corporation? Is it individual insurance policies? Um, is it NGOs? Where will this assistance come from or should it come from uh, based on some of the discussions and the research that you're, you're exploring? All of the above. This is not a problem you can solve, you know, I think with, with a few NGOs as, as well-meaning as they are. And we have some tremendous partners there. So my thanks for the work they do. Our, our payers or hospitals or doctors, this is a holistic effort. I, I think I think, you know, I think if there's a, if there's a happiness and a peace index and, you know, Bhutan talks about this and there's others that have done this, that would be a, at a remarkable low overall. Um, and, uh, and the, the, the depth of the, the depth of the deep, so the amplitude of people being down, we've done some work on suicide and depression. Um, we find that it is people are living at a few notches below where they would have lived three years, five years, seven years, 10 years ago. And this is true, actually, independent of socioeconomic status. And that's the interesting part. So, so the New Yorker uh, or the Singaporean or the person in Berlin is at par with, you know, um, people in sub-Saharan Africa. There, there is no, um, and, and so there is that definitely very little tangible marginal utility of, of socioeconomic status. It's, it is a piece of, it, 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 it needs to be holistic. Like you fight it like you fight, like you wanted to fight HIV. You mm-hmm. fight it like you wanted to fight cancer. Um, you fight it like a pandemic, right? I mean, it is, it is, I would say it is at that level. And it worries me probably more than COVID does because we've got some preventive stuff there um, that we can apply, but what, this is a, a lot harder to execute against. Do, do you have a sense from, from the research that it, is this existential uh, angst or is it more personal or situational mental uh, well-being, which is being challenged by virtue of, anything that might be going on in one's life. What do you think? 
I think some of it is situational. Um, I think moments of transition are much harder today than they were um, than they were earlier. And moments of transition are kids going to college, first jobs, second jobs, um, having kids, um, also retirement. I, I find I find many of my friends who are in their mid forties to mid sixties in the process of leaving or being exited from you know large jobs, having these moments of crisis. Um, and that cascading and staying with them as a, as a cloud forever. So it's definitely situational. Um, some of it is existential, but I, I find that the younger generation, and I, I don't want to go all doom and gloom here, the younger generation is incredibly adaptive at um, being less existentially challenged. Um, uh, uh, one funny data point uh, is, is that a lot of these uh, kids in between the age of 17 and 22 are going and working on farms. They're going and working in communes. Um, I just met somebody who's working in Kingston, in upstate New York, and they're, they're farming a small plot of land, and that's what they're doing. And it's this way of connecting. So I think, I think there's, there is an existential piece there. If anything, uh, there, is, there is great peace there. And I think the outdoors are being embraced. So that's through COVID too. So I have, I'm, I'm excited about, about that. I'm like, oh, there is. So, so how do you now help people manage the transitions in a way that uh, the there is some existential stuff, but I see these glimmers, and I think that's what you double down on. You double down on, on things of beauty that, that give you joy, and hopefully it overcomes transitional challenges. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I, I think there's also this sense that at some point, if there's nothing I can do about it, or if it, the problem is too big, I just throw up my hands and I retreat to someplace safe and manageable. And so perhaps it's just that idea of getting your hands in the soil, restoring yourself to nature, uh, being back in touch with what you can control somehow then allows you to overcome some of the anxiety that might have been creeping in if you're living in a large urban center with lots of pressures and uncertainties. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's uh, we're generalizing, but it's fascinating to see this. And, and I've noticed it myself. And I don't know if it's a strong trend line or if it's just anecdotal, but nevertheless, it does suggest that people are applying and deploying different strategies to deal with this, right? In the absence of having the kind of health care and support they need, um, it's really up to them to figure out how they're going to, if that means resigning and, and moving to a, to a quiet town, or if it means, you know, engaging or switching jobs, or if it means, you know, going back to school, I guess everybody's got a new strategy. So I see lots of change in the market. And when I say the market, I mean, globally, um, you know, in, 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 in the, in the, uh, the whole uh, people business that we're in, and the recruitment business and the people development business, I've never seen more change and, and shift and adjustment. Um, much of it is anecdotal, but I'd say that lots of organizations have never been busier in trying to feel out, figure out how to not only recruit, but appeal, retain, um, and inspire and engage their employees, which brings me to the question of corporate responsibility. Um, this is a big one. And you know, on this podcast, we dedicate lots of time to the corporate purpose issues. Um, what is the role and responsibility of a corporation to address and deal with uh, personal mental health challenges in their employees. Yeah, so I'm 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 going to answer the question in a staged fashion because I, I have a I have a different take on on employees and employers. Um, and my take is as follows, right? I think a, a lot of us as managers and leaders and employers think about employees and let's spend some time recruiting them. Let's create a structure and a culture and a compensation package. And an environment that allows these people to come in and let's keep them for as, you know, as long as possible. And, and my point of view is a little counter. My point of view is that that's unnatural. 
what's natural is that Steve comes to work with me. And for 18 months or 24 months, we create an environment where Steve excels, enjoys, and then Steve graduates and he goes on to do something else. And I think, I think that model accelerates the learning for an employee, accelerates the productivity for an organization. I guarantee you people who've been in an organization 15 years are probably working at between 25 and 40% of their capability. Hmm. And there's, there's uh, and, and, and a bunch of HR people are going to get mad at me for saying that. But that is true. I think, you know, I, I think in today's day and age, to get, to get a young Steve in, um, you've got to create an opportunity for them to have impact quickly. And then you've got to have an opportunity for them to build and move on and create an alumni of well-wishers. Um, and they may be part-timers sometimes, they may be consultants sometimes. So I think, I think an organization has to have flex in that, in that respect. Um, to answer the specific part of your question around an organization's responsibility with mental health, I, I, I think lots of organizations do a great job. Uh, I know we have a three-day policy um, where people can just take three days anytime to recharge. Um, we pay for mental health um, expenses, and as do hundreds of other amazing companies, right? They all they all invest in this time network. I think the the trick here is can I enable my colleague who is challenged to go get help? And I think where employers should not overstep, I'm not qualified to help somebody. I'm not a trained doctor or a professional. So all I can do is enable and create a structure where they feel that it is safe and open to say, yes, it's, it's like saying, I have the sniffles. I'm not coming to work today. Say, hey, I'm, 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 I don't have a great, I'm not having a great day today. I'm not coming to work today. And I think that permission is what employers can and should do and then they should figure out how to create a structure where this is treated just as any other illness it should be part of insurances it's surprising how many insurances around the world don't cover this i mean shame on them yeah <laughs> it is it is i mean it is their responsibility to cover that um otherwise you'll have a tsunami of other effects um that will you know drive premiums up and be costly for employers over a period of time yeah, I mean, there, there's that financial and also then the, the legal responsibility. Um, and then there's also that notion of when is it crossing a line? When is it a work issue versus a personal issue? Um, and there's some, uh, some reticence, I think, in terms of trying to know where that line is. I, I found it really quite interesting in a recent uh, uh, Forbes article uh, cited um, a survey where, um, uh, and this is primarily US centric, but it's indicative that something like 80% of CEOs believe that poor uh, employee mental health uh, negatively impacts worker product productivity. 94% of them report having received mental health support themselves over the past year. Um, there, there seems to be this de desire and this interest and this willingness to acknowledge, accept and do something about it. But then when employees are asked, how is your employer showing up for you? 48% of employees report experiencing high to extreme stress over the past year. Um, and 96% uh, of, of them say that, however, they're not receiving the attention uh, they need from their, from their employers. Uh, and, and, and whether it's just general counseling or whether it's an openness and a willingness to discuss, there's a big, broad category in there. I guess my point on this is that um, there seems to be some discomfort around this subject that's preventing employer and employee from getting on the same page and doing something about it. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I mean, Steve, so, so complete, complete garbage, right? Because it, um, in terms of the employer 
if, if you think every CEO, every senior exec um, has a coach, right? And what is a coach? A coach is a way for me to be better at my job. And, and I may not be depressed, but I'm under stress. I may not have a mental health challenge, but I've recognized there is a gap that I'm trying to fill that a coach is helping fill for me. Mm-hmm. And a, a coach effectively is helping my brain, my body, my state of affairs, my, my mental health be better so I can be more productive. And I have that as a resource and, and as, do, as do so many, so many execs around the world. Now, that same level of support should be given to a kid joining out of college, right? Mm. So I don't want to take stress away. So stress exists, and it's an important thing in how we function at all levels of the organization. So I don't think it should be removal of stress, which I would, I would not uh, advocate. But I would advocate for support systems being in place strongly. So it, again, doesn't, you know, I think inequality is what pisses me off, pardon the language. Mm. <laughs> so you've got, you've got CEOs being able to get coaches at $1,000 an hour, and you've got that young kid coming out of college, figuring out how to make, make do on this job and not having the resources and HR marking him in a perfunctory, very um, mathematical way. So oh, you took four days off, uh, you must be slacking. Um, but it's okay for, you know, for Anurag and Steve to go to Aspen and talk to two coaches. Uh, just, just wrong. Yeah, That's well, wrong. you've touched on something, which is the cultural anomalies, the idea that, you know, you got to earn it. It's like going and doing uh, after medical school, you've got to make the rounds and you've got to earn it. You got to, you know, go through the pain. And, and, and there's also a leadership method here that, which is, you know, I cannot show the boss weakness if he sees that I'm weak or if he sees that I'm vulnerable. Um, and, and therefore it's up to the leadership to then turn it around ask a few more questions, be a little more inquisitive, and clearly demonstrate some vulnerability themselves. This is a pivot. This is a change. We haven't seen this until you know, the last four, five, six years. Uh, yet, I, I'm not seeing that, that it turned fast enough in order to meet the needs and expectations of young professionals who are coming into the workplace saying, I, I have different expectations from, uh, from those of the older generations, right? Yeah, I think one thing that everybody could do better in this sharing of the challenge, right, is this articulation of uh, or, or attempting to articulate what would help me be better, hmm. right? So, so let's say I was challenged, Steve, and you came to me as my superior. Um, what would help you tremendously to say, Anurag, is it, is it, you know, this kind of work? Is it this organization? Is it the expectations I have? Is it, you know, your girlfriend challenges? Is it uh, a new city you're in? Is it because you move? And I think, I think it's incumbent on those of us who are struggling to at least be able to offer up ways that other people and other organizations and other sectors can help us. And I think, I think even for those who are trying to help, uh, it can't be a generic, how are you feeling? What can I do to help? Because that's a, just a broad thing. Like, what do you do with that? Um, whereas it can be a specific thing around, um, can I get you some food, um, or or are you you know do you need help sleeping, or or um, uh, is it easier if you start work during the day, or you know you're not finding time to go to the gym, and and these are things that we know that help improve mental health. There's enough evidence of that. So I think organizations can help their managers be better at asking questions and offering help in a structured, prescriptive way. So, that, so then, you know, we at least try and try and meet the employee and the colleague halfway, as opposed to a gen- generic, 
hey, I'm here for you, man. Well, yeah. That does that does no good. Yeah, in a way, in a way, diagnosing, you know, what, what the situation, um, and being trained to do so effectively without creating alarm or panic or or creating guilt or or shame. Uh, which which oftentimes is an issue, you know, in good faith, I think a lot of senior executives raise these questions with young people who appear to be struggling, and they're shamed because they don't know how to do it. So there's a technique here. So I, I think there's some training is what you're alluding to, yes. uh, which which uh, which could be uh, well served and, and, and serve the interest of the whole entire organization. So yeah, it, it's it's a big thorny subject, Anurag. It's there's just no direct or clear answer. Every organization, unfortunately, is going to have to figure out what they feel they are or are not capable of doing. But what is true and what we now know is that you can't do nothing. Yeah, this is this is big. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, bigger than anything the human race has faced, is what I would argue. Yeah, well. Um, on, on, on that big note, I'm going to say thank you. And uh, once again, uh, always fascinating, always wonderful to talk to you. Uh, please come back again. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Steve. Take care. Thanks. That was my conversation with Anurag Banerjee, founder and CEO of Quilt AI. Research conducted by the group over the past year and a half shows that general concern for mental well-being is at an all-time high. It's understandable to some degree. The pandemic has created a world of pain and uncertainty for people the world over. Given the general rise in health, social, and economic anxiety, it only makes sense. There are clinical indications of mental wellness, all well documented. Culling through billions of mental health-related conversations won't give us a final diagnosis, but as mentioned earlier, it's the indicative nature of AI-generated research that flags for us shifts in human behavior, the nature of public discourse, and the overall health and wellness of a society. While the Quilt AI research reveals some hopeful signs, such as a 300% increase in the willingness to share and freedom to express mental health concerns, other data points are less reassuring. The generational differences, for instance, are quite revealing, and some of these insights predate the COVID crisis. Take these, for instance, from Deloitte's 2020 Global Millennial Survey. 48% of Gen Zs, ages 9 to 24, and 44% of Millennials, aged 25 to 40, feel anxious or stressed all or most of the time. Women express more stress than men, with 53% to 42% among Gen Zs and 47% to 40% among Millennials. Parents were more stressed than average, especially Gen Z parents, whose children are typically younger. And finally, geographically, the U.S., the U.K., the Philippines are home to the most anxious Millennials. Brazil and Singapore topped the list for Gen Zs. Quilt AI research takes it to another level, finding that depression is highest among millennials. Gen X, ages 41 to 56, speak most openly about fighting depression with product, habit, and behavior. Gen Z is most at ease with saying they are depressed. Meanwhile, millennials are primarily blaming their work as the biggest deterrent to mental well-being, which explains to some degree mass resignations from otherwise stable and well-paying jobs. It's this last point that raises the question on what, if anything, can or should be done by employers to address the self-professed rise in mental unwellness among their employees. Remove for a moment the certitude of whether a person is clinically mentally unwell or not. If someone is frightened or concerned enough about their mental well-being to search the web or engage in chat groups, that's evidence enough that help is wanted. But help from whom? 
As my discussion with Anurag points out, the world and its assorted institutions are woefully unprepared to address the rising tide of mental health needs. In the worst instance, in some places, even discussing mental illness is taboo. Elsewhere, and where open discussion is acceptable, we lack the insurance, the resources, and the ability to inquire about or effectively treat mental unwellness. In wealthy countries, more often than not, the response is pharmacological. Prescriptions of antidepressants are at an all-time high. Counseling is always a good idea, but the world suffers from a shortage of qualified professionals. You see the problem here, right? We're trying to solve for this by treating the symptom versus addressing the root cause. Are we experiencing untold levels of existential angst? Probably. Is that normal in times like these? Absolutely. What would be the first best response? How about empathy and a new level of attention paid to how we show up for each other in the first instance? COVID has forced us as a species to physically distance and find refuge in isolation. Let's face it, we weren't designed to function that way. Humans are social animals. It's possible that one sunny day, six months or a year from now, we will return to normal, head back to the office, have large dinner parties with friends, and swap war stories. Maybe the angst will dissipate, and maybe fears of mental wellness will also subside. We could only hope for as much. At the very least, years from now, when a friend or colleague is struggling, maybe at long last we'll be able to have that conversation, offer support, or just listen. That would be a change for the better, don't you think? And maybe, just maybe, we would start to get to the root of the problem and find the solution to mental unwellness by investing in the one thing that appears to make the biggest difference— positive human connection. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia, and if you haven't checked out our new website, please do. There are over 180 episodes to choose from, all searchable and covering a range of topics from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter, so if you prefer reading to listening, now you can do so. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights, and references earlier episodes on related topics as well. Over the past four years, we've featured a wide range of regional thought leaders, business heads, and operational insiders. Hear what they have to say by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.